The Capital Weekly Podcast is supported by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. The Capital Weekly Podcast is a production of Open California and is sponsored by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. Hello. Thank you for joining us for a special episode of the Capital Weekly Podcast. Today's podcast was recorded on October 6th at Capital Weekly's conference on California's mental health crisis. This is the first panel of the day on the origins of California's mental health crisis and long-term solutions. Hello, uh, my name is Tim Foster. I am the executive director of Open California, which is the publisher of Capital Weekly. We are hosting this conference and we do quarterly events on topics of public interest every year. We've been doing these since 2010. And in fact, I believe this is our 10th conference on healthcare. And today's event will focus on mental health care, the mental health crisis that is currently happening in California. I am very pleased to say that we have a stellar uh, slate of panelists and and uh, moderators for today. And our keynoter will be Senator Susan Eggman. Uh, I would be remiss if I did not thank our sponsors, Capital Weekly and uh, Open California, our 501c3 nonprofit. We couldn't do this without our sponsors. And today's gold sponsor is Kaiser Permanente. And our other sponsors are the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. They've been with us since the beginning and has supported everything we've done ever since. Uh, the Western States Petroleum Association, KP Public Affairs, Perry Communications, Capital Advocacy, the Associated Builders and Contractors of Northern California, the California Building Industry Association, Lucas Public Affairs, the Metropolitan Water District of Southern California, Pandora, and the California Professional Firefighters. And we thank them very much. We just could not do these events if we did not have the support of our sponsors and of folks like you who have uh, donated to Open California. As I mentioned, today's topic will be on mental health. And I would like to take just one second to note the passing of one of our board members, uh, Scott Lay. Scott Lay was the former president of the Community College League. He was publisher of The Nooner. He was the co-creator of The Roundup, which is a daily politics email newsletter that we run uh, here at Capital Weekly every day. And uh, Scott passed unexpectedly uh, last month. And he had been very public about his struggles with mental health issues and with addiction issues. And I really uh, could not help but think of him many, many times as we were putting this event together. And it's a reminder that uh, mental health issues affect people that are in all walks of life who may seem otherwise to be extraordinarily successful, but are, uh, are struggling with issues that we maybe can't see, maybe we can't see, but uh, it's just a reminder that this is all around us and uh, it affects people that are very close to us. And Scott, uh, Scott was very, very close to us and extraordinarily important to our organization and we miss him greatly. So with that, uh, I will guide you to quick questions from, uh, to the Q&A function on Zoom here, and we will take those and forward them to the moderator at the end of the event. So uh, this uh, panel will be about one hour long, and so we will do our best to get as, to as many questions as we can at the end of that hour. So with that, I'm going to turn you over to our moderator. Our moderator is Angela Hart. She is writes for Kaiser Health News. She also uh, provides content for other 
media venues. She has been with the B, Santa Rosa Press Democrat. She is a Wisconsin native. Uh, you'll, you may hear that in her accent. And uh, she has a master's degree from UC Berkeley and has been covering healthcare issues for quite some time and has done stellar work. And with that, I'm going to turn you over to Angela. Thanks for signing in with us today. And uh, Angela, I'll turn that over to you. Thank you so much, Tim, and thank you so much, Capital Weekly, for having me. Um, I'm really looking forward to a lively discussion this morning, um, and I just want to set up the panel a little bit, um, set the stage for the conversation today. Uh, inadequate mental health care, both for serious mental illness and mild to moderate conditions, has plagued California's system. Care is bifurcated and difficult, if not impossible, for patients to navigate. And of course, the state's affordability crisis has made matters much worse with inadequate housing, with inadequate infrastructure and systems of care to actually meet people where they are. Um, of course, we're seeing that play out on the streets all over California, um, but the crisis is also largely hidden, um, plagued with stigma around mental health and addiction treatment. And I'd like to start this morning with uh, a couple of just uh, rapid fire questions. I would like to urge the panelists, please go super fast. Try to stay to a minute even. Um, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna come at you if you go more than two minutes. Um, I'd like to just start these couple first with rapid fire questions. And um, if I could start with uh, Michelle at the outset, Michelle Cabrera um, from the Behavioral Health Directors Association. Um, uh, since mental health and addiction also, I just want to ask the panelists are so intertwined. I'd like you to um, po possibly speak to both in your answers. Um, if you had to pinpoint a driver of California's uh, behavioral health crisis or your biggest pressing concern about its failures and how we got here, um, what would that be? Hi, good Hi. morning, everyone. Michelle Cabrera, Executive Director for the County Behavioral Health Directors Association. And thank you so much for the opportunity to be here today. I think if I had to pinpoint one thing, it would be that we have um, structured uh, the um, payment for services delivered to people with serious mental illness and substance use disorders as um, a grants program from the federal level on down. Um, within Medicaid, I know there's a lot of attention about insurance and, you know, how uh, mental health or substance use disorder services sit outside of our primary care or physical health systems. But Medicaid really only pays for a portion of what is necessary, as you know, as others here know today who are interested in this population. Um, oftentimes when folks get severe and, and we haven't had real parity in terms of um, insurance. We haven't really had commercial plans covering um, uh, treatment early on, early interventions, recovery works. People can get help if they have access to the right kind of care, but we haven't really had that. And so people become really severe. They become disabled by virtue of their behavioral health conditions. And then we expect insurance to get to them when really that, that sort of whole vision anticipates that somebody will show up at the doctor's office and say, hey, doc, I've got an addiction or, hey, doc, I've got a really serious mental health condition. Oftentimes, the work that we need to do to identify our folks, to reach them, to bring them into services falls outside of insurance reimbursement. And we've got a patchwork of grants um, and 
you know, different funding sources with different strings. And we really haven't adequately funded our safety net for behavioral health treatment. So you look at Medi-Cal outside of our public safety net is $123 billion today. And that compares to just $8 billion, $9 billion on a good day in our public safety net that's really making up for deficiencies, both in Medi-Cal as well as uh, the uninsured and people with commercial insurance who the safety net is really propping up. And so at the end of the day, we have this patchwork of funding. We've got much, much less resource going to this community. And the public, I think, is really frustrated with that. They want a robust safety net, but they want to be able to easily access and tap into life-saving services. Um, I can say a lot more, but I'll just- Thank you, Michelle. Um, Janet, I'd love to go to you next, please. Yes, I agree Agree with everything that Michelle has uh, said. And I think if we want to take us back to history, you know, I I think folks um, often point to um, the decisions made in the 60s and the 70s to deinstitutionalize, to move folks out of state hospitals into community-based services. And, and, and folks are, are right that that's one of the drivers, but the reason they're right isn't so much that we took people out of state hospitals. For lots of people, that was the right thing. The problem is we took folks out of state hospitals into the community and we did not adequately, we still don't adequately fund those services uh, for folks with mental health or substance use needs. It's you know, quite a difference from developmental disabilities where under Lanterman Act, there's an entitlement and, and there's greater resources. We, as Michelle says, we have this real patchwork and it's just not adequate. Um, uh, the other thing I would say, the thing that I, you know, keeps me up at night is, is our workforce needs. Um, we just do not in, in many parts of the state, particularly rural areas, have the workforce we need uh, to ensure that people get the right care in the right place, in the right time. And by right care, I mean, not just having somebody to take care of them, but somebody who's really got the expertise uh, to meet their particular needs. Uh, So I think that's a challenge. Uh, One more, well, I'll stop there. Thank you, Janet. And uh, thank you. We'll get to the workforce. I have a workforce question for you a little bit later. Um, And Dr. Batchelor, I'd like to go to you next, please. Thanks. Good morning, everyone. So I would... uh, echo what our previous speakers commented on. And I would say that from the perspective of someone who runs a community hospital that was not designed to be a primary mental health provider, um, the problems that we see are the siloing of the streams of payment and the delivery of care for people with mental illnesses and the lack of access that exists in our communities. And As a result of that lack of access, we have so many patients who are not getting the care they need, and it impacts so many areas of their lives. Many of these are homeless individuals who are struggling with both mental health problems and substance use. It leads to uh, under management of their medical conditions and robs them of many years of life. It has congested our hospitals and emergency departments because our emergency departments are on the front line. These folks are walking into our emergency departments and um, we generally don't have the resources that we need to address the problems that they they present with. So I think that it's a combination of 
the fragmentation of mental health and substance abuse from the rest of medical care and when it ought to be completely integrated and the lack of, of funding for access and resources. Thank you so much for the thoughtful uh, responses. Uh, I like to shake things up a little bit. And um, in this question, I just kind of want to, I want everybody to throw out what you know about the state's mental health system and um, let's rip it up and you can rewrite it. Resources aren't an issue. Um, you have your wish of building uh, a system of care that's adequate. This is a dangerous question because we can get into a slippery slope of long discussions. I'd like to, to please endeavor to keep it to a minute or minute or, or roughly a minute. Um, if you could rebuild um, the state's behavioral health system with all of the resources and, and evidence ca capabilities that you need, what would it look like today? So, so I'll go first. Um, it would, as I said, it would be fully integrated with the rest of medical care. And we are attempting to do that at our hospital and in our health system, even though we are struggling with the fragmentation of the way that mental health uh, is funded and delivered in California. So it would look like um, access to services at every step along the continuum of care. And those services would be integrated and coordinated so that you would, you would see a mental health provider and have screening in an emergency department. You would be able to receive treatment in any hospital. And as an outpatient, when you go to have your medical conditions cared for, your, your mental health and substance abuse conditions would be cared for in the same setting and with the same group of providers. And you wouldn't have to struggle to navigate a complicated, fragmented system that would have you go different places for different things. We would also have enough acute uh, beds for acute care, and we would have more uh, acute stabilization units. We know that if we provide the right services for people who are in a crisis, we can often avoid a hospitalization. So I think those are some of the ideas that I would like to see put in place. I'm glad you touched on that. Michelle or uh, Janet, whoever wants to go next. I'm gonna say something that I think may come off as a little controversial, but I don't think that we can medical model our way out of what our what what is often necessary here, which is a biopsychosocial model of care that is integrated across many, many systems. We talk about integration and and are thinking often conjuring the vision that Dr. Batchelor laid out, which is, you know, you go to your medical office and everything gets addressed at once. There's no reason that private that commercial insurers couldn't do that today. And yet that's not the experience of people with private coverage. And I think, you know, it speaks to the fact that behavioral health markets function different, differently. A lot of that does go back to stigma, which uh, Janet mentioned earlier. And just the reality is that stigma is still there. And oftentimes it's an unconscious bias on the part of well-meaning people who really want to help or they want help for themselves or their loved ones. There's, you know, we just are where we are in this moment in history, which is a good one. We're on the precipice of change. We're on the precipice of understanding, wait a minute, um, people actually maybe through no fault of their own have these conditions that require interventions. And I think the response or the solution here is multifold. It's gonna require a lot of change on the part of a lot of actors. One, we need our private insurance industry for commercially insured individuals to, to get much more involved and aggressive about behavioral health conditions 
at the early onset, right? And so when people reach out for help, they need to know that their insurance is going to come through and help them. And I know the Department of Managed Healthcare in California has been working on implementation of parity, but frankly, parity laws are about does the insurance apply the same rules for what they said they're going to cover? It's not about what are they going to cover. And this is my other crucial point here, which is that when it comes to the homelessness crisis and the overlay with behavioral health conditions, the solution to homelessness is housing, right? And we need access to housing for people with serious mental illness and substance use disorder needs. Um, oftentimes that group as a marginalized, stigmatized, discriminated against group struggles to access housing and the safety net that serves them doesn't really have dedicated streams that guarantee that we're going to be able to access housing for all of those people. And so I think there's sort of this mismatch in terms of expectations and hopes on the part of our communities and policymakers, which is, gosh, why can't you house all these people? And yet we don't have access to those resources. If the public wants to see real meaningful change here, give us access to housing stock, help us clear the field in terms of public pushback at housing people who, yes, have serious conditions in their communities, right? This is not a problem we're going to ship off to another state. We need to be willing to house people in our communities. And we need to understand that, again, through, through unfortunate unconscious bias, our communities have been uh, criminalized. And so some of them might have felony convictions, and that makes housing even more challenging. So preventive strategies, early upstream, providing us with access to housing, those two things will go a tremendous way in turning the tide. And we need for our regulators to hold those insurers accountable if we're going to have an insurance-based behavioral health system for things like um, inpatient, outpatient treatment, as well as medication. Janet, you know, agree with uh, Elaine and Michelle. A few points. I think Michelle, what Michelle, is, you know, is really pointing to uh, is the need to have community-based services, to not have this all institutionally based. And one of the reasons that that's very important is our folks with severe mental illness, especially those with a dual diagnosis of substance abuse, often have a distrust of the institutions and, 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 and the system, and, and sometimes a mistrust that, that's well-founded. And, and we've got to, I think, have a system that meets those people where they are uh, on the street. And, and that means that part of our system, you know, needs to be, you know, behavioral health professionals who are comfortable being out there in the street with people and, and willing to engage them where where they are. And, and part of this, I think, you know, involves um, having a workforce like peer, um, peer counselors, people with lived experience of severe mental illness, lived experience of substance use, homelessness. People can say, I, I, I have been there and really mean it and, and, and be able to build that trust. I, I think the fact that we now have certification for peer providers and a way to get reimbursement is going to be very important. The other thing I want to say briefly um, is that we really need to integrate mental health and substance use disorder services. Um, there are too many times when the mental health side of the house treats one thing, the substance use sits another, and they don't meet. And 
you know, a substance use disorder detoxification may not be willing to take somebody who's got schizophrenia, got zero episode. Conversely, the folks treating mental health may not know the best ways to treat the substance use disorder. We, we've got to do that because there are there's too many people out there with a dual diagnosis. And to Michelle's point, in part because they're self-medicating, because they're having trouble getting the mental health services they need. And sure, that maybe for a little while that self-medication helps, but we all unfortunately, you know, know too many people whose substance use disorder, you know, really ends up consuming their lives. So we've got to do. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Um, That, uh, thank you. And that really sets up uh, my next um, uh, set of questions. And I'm just going to move really quickly. I'm going to address specific questions to different panelists. Um, I just want to do some ground setting um, at the outset um, and Kate, for those who are unaware. Um, the state is uh, uh, underway, underway in California are major transformations in the behavioral health and healthcare space. Uh, Governor Gavin Newsom and Secretary Mark Galley are leading these major transformation and they're not getting much attention yet remarkably, but um, these are large scale transformations, some of the biggest in the country um, and in some ways, the state is actually re- rewriting its Medicaid program to really focus outside of hospital walls, outside of the clinical walls. And it's offering, for example, a rich suite. Um, this is starting in January of non-traditional healthcare services. We're talking about sobering centers that you spoke to, Dr. Bachelor, where health plans are actually providing new services to Medi-Cal beneficiaries to avoid some of this long-term institutionalization, to avoid um, sending people to jails, which are, which of course serve as de facto mental health facilities in California, and to avoid, of course, uh, the crisis on the streets we see today. Um, some of these initiatives, a little bit wonky, but it's called the California Advancing and Innovating Medi-Cal Initiative. Um, there's another big initiative that looks to build out community treatment centers uh, all across California. There are new housing supports coming in the state Medicaid program starting in January, which are aimed at targeting homeless people. And uh, importantly, there's a new statewide management, enhanced care management benefit. This is mandatory by the state managed care plans, and they're going to be essentially going out to find the people in crisis on the streets and really trying to reach them. What do you need? Do you need an ID? Do you need help? Do you need health insurance? You need to sign up for Medi-Cal. What can we do to make you successful? And what can we do to avoid some of those long-term costs on the system? Um, <clears throat> there's also a large schools initiative that is happening. Um, I would like to start, um, uh, Janet, I would like to start with you. Um, because this comes, the, the heart of these transformations really come down in some ways to the state's ability to hire people and to build networks to serve people adequately. Um, part of these major transformations are going to be branching outside of health insurance and really going to community-based organizations and going to nonprofit service delivery, homeless service providers, asthma providers, and saying, will you go out and help our patients? Can you please speak to some of the challenges that might that there are with the current workforce and how, what kind of struggle the state might have in building this incredibly uh, ambitious system on top of something that's already in some ways very broken? 
Excellent question, Angela. And I think we do, our state really does struggle um, with our behavioral health workforce in multiple ways. Um, one is a severe maldistribution of the workforce. We have you know, many more providers to serve uh, the public in, in the Bay Area and our other more affluent coastal areas than we do in the Central Valley, Inland Empire, far north. So just there are places where we simply just don't have enough people to provide the services. Um, we also have an issue that there are a number of behavioral health providers who just are out working outside the insurance system. Um, they, you know, they either don't take insurance at all, or they'll say, well, here's the form. If you can get your um, health plan uh, to cover part of the cost, go for it. But you've got to do the legwork. And so we have this circumstance where not only can the people that the public system serves have difficulty accessing care, but people with health insurance, people with you know good health insurance struggle to find providers. Um, so I think those are challenges. I think a couple other things, um, we have a behavioral health workforce that does not fully reflect the racial, ethnic, and linguistic diversity of our population. And we know from research at Ratho Ethnic Concordance matters for trust. We know that linguistic concordance matters tremendously for communication. And we're just not there, particularly among psychiatrists and, and psychologists. Uh, and one last thing quickly is I think if we're going to do this, we need a better career ladder within behavioral health. We have opportunities for folks to work as peer providers, community mental health workers, uh, other sorts of jobs that you know require an associate degree or less. But for those folks, we don't have a great career ladder for them to move to the bachelor's degree, to the master's or doctor. People certainly do it, but we don't have a clear system. It, the people who do it are the people who you know have the moxie to either figure it out themselves or they have supervisors, mentors who say, let me show you how, how you can do this. I know our community colleges are working on building those career letters and pathways. And it's just, it's going to be critical if we really want a workforce in the right places with the right competencies. Thank you, Michelle. I would love for you to please speak to trust. So much of this centers on trust. Um, I recently spent some time with a homeless woman in Oakland who has schizophrenia. She's got bipolar disorder. She's got a host of problems. It took me about eight times to get her to open up to me. Um, now I can't get her to stop calling me. And, and to be honest, it's heartbreaking because um, I can't I can't go to Oakland and walk, hold her hand to every appointment. It, it really speaks to the immense difficulty it had. And, you know, it struck me when I was talking with her Gosh, the success of this multi-billion dollar, multi-year initiative in so many ways hinges on something so intangible as trust. Can you please speak to the importance of that? Absolutely. And again, I think that goes to some of the earlier comments that I was making about sort of the limitations or deficiencies of insurance in general, because today, you know, under Medi-Cal, even though a person like the woman that you connected with in Oakland is a Medi-Cal beneficiary, um, she, the, the sort of 
part of the work that requires not her coming to you in your clinic or hospital, but you going to her out in the community where she's living in her tent and really taking the time, days, weeks, sometimes months or even years to build rapport and trust, that's not covered under insurance because it's not considered a medical service. And this is part of what I'm saying. We have to understand that these systems, the safety net and what's necessary, not nice to have, necessary to connect with people and bring them into services is often going to fall outside of insurance. There's another sort of perverse um, uh, sort of rule within the mental health system, which is that if somebody is being treated in a facility that's over 16 beds, whether it's for mental health or um, substance use disorders in under federal law that is not allowed for Medicaid reimbursement. Now, California led the nation five years ago in going after a federal waiver to allow for residential substance use disorder treatment to be covered in um, under Medicaid. But I think a lot of people don't understand that, again, we've re made it really challenging. We've thrown so many roadblocks in the way of the safety net systems that try to serve these people that, you know, I would say you, it, it makes it really tough on the system. And then we have this public narrative that the safety net has failed the community. I would say that the people on the front lines doing the work in the public behavioral health safety net day in and day out are heroes because they're still showing up. They're still in person out in the community figuring out ways to make it work despite those challenges. And we really need to think of it not as a broken system, but a system that's been neglected and shortchanged. And the, the investments that the Newsom administration has made this year um, alone in putting money into infrastructure, in putting money into um, school-based partnerships in really prioritizing health equity as well. You know, these, these are sort of laying the groundwork, but again, the gap between what we want and where we're starting from is pretty significant. It's going to take more than that. And in particular, the staff time, the sort of service delivery time, the recognition that sometimes the medicine that's most needed, whether it's housing, relationship building, or community-defined practices that don't fall within the medical model, that sometimes those things are really the secret sauce that helps people get where they need to be, which is on a pathway to recovery and wellness, which we know is possible and, and happens for people. I'm going to go to um, Dr. Bachelor and then Senator Bell. I'm going to go to you with a meaty question. And um, by the way, panel, uh, I'm sorry if my face disappears. I have some lighting um, shining in my face. So just if I disappear, don't don't worry. Um, Dr. Bachelor, uh, Los Angeles is the homelessness capital of America. Um, and the work that you all do is front and center here. You all um, experience and fill the gaps in some of the failures of the various state systems. I'm curious, has anything surprised you or angered you or stood out in terms of something that California could be doing that can really make a difference here that it isn't doing, that it isn't planning on? Is there something um, that stands out to you? And I am also just authentically curious if you get angry and 
um, and you're in doing your job day to day, seeing sort of, you know, experiencing this intractable issue. Yes. Um, and being a hospital and health system located in a very low income, medically underserved community, we see a lot of homeless individuals that are not getting the care they need on a daily basis. And the only time they do get help is when they're in a crisis. And when they're in a crisis, they come into the emergency department and, you know, we address the crisis, but then we are sending them back out into the same conditions that led to that crisis. Um, what we're trying to do differently is to meet them where they are and to start to take care of those problems. Um, I completely agree with the efforts to move our interventions into the community. I worry about capacity and our ability to, you know, fulfill the vision and the time it will take to develop that capacity. But I think it's the right approach. Um, an example of how we're doing this is through development of a street medicine program. So that when we touch a homeless individual, we will follow up with that person where they are. And if it's on the street, we will go to them on the street and care for them there. We will try to connect them with all of the, the social services that are available. We will try to help them get housed, but we will go and meet them where they are. I think there's a, um, there's an, there's a myth that our homeless individuals are being served through Medicaid managed care. They're assigned to a medical home. They're never going to that medical home. You know, they're living on the street. They don't have transportation. They're not getting medical care of any sort until they're in a crisis. And I think we have to recognize that that's a failure and change our approach. And there isn't funding for us for doing street medicine, but we know it's the right thing to do. I think that's a policy change that our state could implement that would make a huge difference. Thank you, um, <clears throat> Senator Bell. Um, you're, uh, you and in, in during your time in the legislature uh, tried and in and, and, and recent years were successful, but you tried for many years to push through some of these major reforms to improve the state's behavioral health system. Um, you authored legislation, correct me if I'm wrong, please, to um, provide peer supports for um, people with mental health conditions. Um, and, you know, you've spoken, um, you've really pushed this agenda when, in Sacramento, really trying to address this bifurcation of the system and stigma, um, not only for the, for people with serious conditions, but for mild to moderate conditions, depression, um, sort of breaking down those barriers to say, you know, we are going to open up preventative care in this space and we're gonna compel the state to step up here. Um, can you please speak to what drove you here and what kind of industry forces you were warring with? Uh, I, I was a happy warrior, I'll just say that. So um, I enjoyed, um, focusing on mental health because it was such a complex subject and it was um, very enjoyable to work on that because I found that a lot of people besides Daryl Steinberg himself uh, didn't really want to spend any time on the subject. So we created a select committee and the mental health caucus started inviting 
legislators to um, attend and hear presentations and educate themselves. I found that uh, the stigma uh, in of itself in the Capitol and around the Capitol was probably the biggest barrier. Mm-hmm. Uh, the way people looked at mental health uh, as a more of a budget thing, uh, not as a human being and how to help a human being. So I think that that whole um, dynamic of looking somehow people as a just a budget issue was probably the biggest um, barrier and probably still is the biggest barrier. Um, I found that um, uh, what they call what we did, we did in Santa Clara County uh, when I was county supervisor, uh, we started the wraparound program. We started um, diverting people from prison through mental health courts with uh, Judge Manley, who I worked with to create that program. And um, uh, just build more supportive housing, uh, transitional housing, so people can get off the street. Housing, I think, is right now the big bottleneck, as well as uh, more staff that is needed. So uh, we need to incentivize people going into the profession and uh, create uh, opportunities for people, uh, especially people of color, uh, because that's uh, the disparities uh, issue is a very prominent uh, problem. And I think uh, when people look at the state budget um, and how it's on auto drive to a great extent, um, we should start looking at the criminal justice system uh, to be smart on crime and then maybe look at um, closing some more prisons and saving some money and diverting that to real true um, full mental health services as as opposed to the current Medi-Cal system where it's just uh, sort of a moderate uh, to severe um, Medi-Cal system only provides care for moderate to severe uh, people that have mental health issues. So, so I think uh, for me, for me, um, realigning the budget priorities a little bit would probably be. It's politically very difficult to do, but uh, the state budget is. And I've been on the budget committee my whole time in the legislature. Actually, my whole 40 years in office, I've been on budget committees or chaired budget committees, and the the budget process in California is really an autopilot uh, base budget plus kind of system when you get right down to it there's we have to change that it has to be strategic and the governor started doing that by saying he's going to close some prisons but i think we have to do a lot more to get people out of prison that really should be in the community being treated and um i've been to 24 prisons so i i spent a lot of time in the prisons going to them um it seems to me that um, once these people are out of prison and they still they don't have a therapeutic environment in the prison, you got to think of what would happen if we put them in a therapeutic environment. Would they have a better outcome as a human being? And everybody says yes. So then, if it's yes, why don't we do it? Let me just say, excuse it? me. Let me interject for a moment and just note um, that. As part of the state's uh, CalAIM 
uh, Medi-Cal transformation, um, there is a large scale shift. Uh, it's a little bit down the road, a couple years down the road, but the state has uh, is is going to receive um, uh, approval from the Biden administration to reach into the jails to provide better care and the transition from the jail to the community and an automatic, including automatic, if you're eligible, uh, sign up for Medi-Cal. So there is a big effort here. Again, I'm skeptical and have a lot of questions. We'll be following sort of how the state transitions in this very new territory, but that's a very good point. Um, Senator, can you please, um, did you, can you please speak to the opposition you face? Did you face headwinds from the plans public plans or private plans or any other political forces when you were trying to push through some of these uh, reforms? Well, the opposition, I would say, is in three areas. Um, um, the health plans don't want um, any mandates on them, um, except for one mandate they really like, and that's the mandate that we all have health insurance. Uh, that mandate has made them billions of dollars, yet the small amount of money it would require to have a mandate for mental health uh, is opposed very strongly by the health plans. Um, and, of course, they give large millions of donations. There's no real mental health pack out there to um, help uh, balance the tables in a, a political environment. So uh, as it comes down to it, um, there's sort of this ingrained uh, within people in the capital that you really can't do much in mental health. And uh, I always felt that was the biggest barrier. It's our own heads that we have as legislators. We have to change our mindset that we have to do things in a bigger way. And um, that's why I created the Select committee because I realize I'm by myself or am totally inadequate to deal with this basic issue of how people think in the Capitol building. And then, the, and then I think the third area is the mental health community is not unified and we're not organized. And uh, if you look at what's happened in other states to get more progressive, and there's a lot of states that have done better than California. They have a much stronger um, uh, political uh, unification of the interest of in the mental health area. So I think there's uh, stronger uh, political bases in other states than there is in California to challenge the insurance companies. And I know that CalAIM, I'm very familiar with that. I think. Um, However, I think that relying on the insurance companies to implement some of the CalAIM is kind of like the fox guarding the chicken house, in a sense, where you're, you know, the work-based uh, health insurance program for mental health is if you have a mental health problem and you then cannot function and lose your job, then you go on to the Medi-Cal system. And... So it's kind of an in, in the interest of, of health plans to get people in the Medi-Cal system. So having them control a lot of the strings in the Medi-Cal system, I kind of, I don't know um, if that's something I would recommend. I would recommend creating a, 
a stronger based public health system for mental health. So it'd be much better if we did it that way. So the tallying yeah. thing, I have some questions about that way. I mean, getting the private insurance companies involved is, there's some danger there. Thank you, Senator Bell. That's very thoughtful. And um, I have one more question and then we're gonna open up to questions. Um, this is kind of an open question for everybody. I think it's extremely important considering the direction California is heading in. The California Pan-Ethnic Health Network just released a report on the equity gaps, the disparities in black and brown communities in access to behavioral health care, addiction treatment, and mental health services across the spectrum. And um, it just seems to me if California is revamping its entire system and again, building all of these new programs on top of something that's already broken. How is the state going to really shore up and address equity and disparity among communities of color in a way that doesn't just pay lip service to it? Um, we don't have much time. I'd like to give about 10 minutes for questions. So just please one thought per person. Um, if, you, if you guys wouldn't mind, please, um, and whoever wants to speak up and if you don't have any thoughts, no problem. Michelle? Yeah, I'll just say that um, the county behavioral health has been, um, since the 1990s, really engaging in attempting to address population health and equity. Um, we have an ethos in the public safety net of being much more client-centered and community um, responsive because of the history of public mental health uh, in California and nationally as well. It's certainly not perfect, but I think, um, you know, there's there's a much longer history there. And there are some lessons learned from uh, the, the cultural competency plans, the ethnic service manager positions that we have embedded within our systems. And I think the, the places where we do this best and where it's most successful is where our county behavioral health agencies are really turning to our communities and saying, you, you tell us what you need. How do we need to do this? How do we need to talk about it? How do we need to structure it um, to overcome and connect and really um, lean into the, the wisdom and the strengths that exist in communities? That kind of work can and does happen. And again, it's a matter of bringing that community-informed, client-informed uh, set of services to scale. But also, you know, we've asked the state, how can we integrate more of those community-defined practices into Medi-Cal reimbursement? so that we can maximize our dollars in California around some of these services. Some of them will never be insurance. Some of them will never be Medi-Cal funded, but for certain things we think we can. And then it goes back to workforce, which is Janet's um, sort of um, key issue here, which is we've, we have communities where we've really succeeded because we've been able to recruit our clinicians as well as our non-clinicians from in community. And so um, we are then able to really adapt community um, you know, perspectives and culture to evidence-based practices. But it's really about uh, expanding what you think of as an effective evidence-based practice, listening to and engaging with communities, and then trying to move our insurance systems along so that they understand the relative value and the bang for your buck in um, reaching people again on their terms. Thank you. Anyone else? Well, I would just add that um, people of color are disproportionately represented by those who are struggling with mental health problems, substance use, and homelessness. 
And as a, um, a state, we need to allocate more resources um, in the ways that we've been talking about during this panel to addressing those problems. And we also need to um, allocate resources to diversify the workforce. As we've talked earlier, trust is a huge issue and we need to have a workforce that, that looks like the people that are being served by that workforce. So we need to reduce the barriers, especially the financial barriers to training and education for communities of color. Actually, Senator Bell, can I direct this question to you from one of our um, one of the questions that came in? Really, think you could speak to this given your work and corrections. Um, one person asks, um, "Can corrections dollars be spent on residential treatment to keep people out of jail in the first place?" Sure. <laughs> uh, right now, we have in the corrections budget, and I was on the Public Safety Budget Committee in the Senate. Uh, we can we can allocate money to those diversion programs uh, in the community uh, as opposed to um, we can do pre-trial diversion. In other words, uh, get the judges and Judge Manley can probably talk about this when he's on there, um, but they can divert people into community treatment. But the bottleneck has always been the housing uh, issue. And uh, we need to. Uh, actually build housing, have organizations to provide uh, what I call supportive housing, group homes, independent living environments, um, all those options so that uh, people can um, be treated in the community and be with their close to their families. Because uh, I think the experience of being in prison or in jail is a traumatic experience that does not help somebody with a severe or even moderate mental health problem. So um, we cannot begin to provide their therapeutic environment until we do this. Well, it looks like uh, I think Angela may be uh, frozen. I'm not sure. So um, I will go ahead and I just, for those who just tuned in, I'm Tim Foster I'm with Capital Weekly, and it looks like Angela may be frozen. So I am going to uh, see if I can get a question. So we had a question from Tom Getty, one of the people uh, that's that's watching right now. And he's asking uh, about the meth crisis. It seems to be unaddressed by health officials. Treatment seems ineffective and inadequate. And uh, has the substitution of a harm reduction uh, policy versus uh, other addiction treatments What's the impact of that? Um, again, this is a question from one of our attendees, Tom Getty. And so I'll throw that out to any of the panelists that have uh, have any ideas on that. Well, maybe I'll just start with a couple of things and then invite Michelle and uh, Elaine. And I think, you know, Tom's absolutely right. We have a meth crisis. Um, and, and I think often on the national scene, that meth crisis has, you know, not gotten... Uh, the airtime that it should have. I mean, oh, there's been a lot of attention to opioid crisis and opioid crisis is real, tremendously important, but, but many, many people on meth. And unfortunately with meth, we do not have as great evidence about what works and what doesn't work. With opioids, there's a pretty strong base of evidence that medication assisted treatment Words. Now, it can be challenging, certainly, to get people onto medication-assisted treatment and stay on it, but it does work. 
we don't have something that works as well for meth. What we do have, and what I understand the governor just enacted, uh, is law to authorize contingency management. And there is some, and, and what that means is basically paying people to stay clean. And there is some evidence that that works. And, and so I'm personally a proponent for, well, let's, let's try it. We've got, you know, if it's the, you know, let's, it, it may not work as well, but it works for some people and we need, we need to try it. Just telling people be strong and stay off meth. I think we, we have a long sense of experience that that by itself ain't working. 100% agree and agree and appreciate the highlight um, from uh, the attendee on the meth crisis in California. I do agree with Janet that, you know, and I think this is in part due to sort of, you know, the DC, what East Coast bias around public policy, but we absolutely have for some time uh, in the West had a meth crisis and agree that we don't have really good medication assisted treatment <laughs> options. And so we're left with fewer tools in the toolbox uh, to try to uh, take that on. But um, we recovery is possible for meth too. Uh, we mm -hmm. have some counties in California that have ex uh, experimented with contingency management as well as other, um, you know, tried and true recovery methods. And really, I think it's, it does require more attention and particularly because of the way that fentanyl is now sort of intersecting with a broader class of drugs, right? Uh, we know that um, fentanyl is being mixed in with other drugs and having producing deadly results. And so, uh, unfortunately, drug users may not realize that they're consuming uh, an opiate that could mm -hmm. take their life in California. And so, it, you know, it does it does sort of, uh, you know, the correlation or the, the interaction between methamphetamines and psychosis, you know, we know about is there and is something that our systems deal with every day um, and and are working to mightily to address again with just fewer options in terms of how you can get to folks. But obviously there is a public health angle here and and I think building awareness publicly about mm -hmm. um, the the damage and the the real sort of um, long-term health effects of methamphetamine use is something that could be helpful as well. Uh, on that note, uh, I just wanted to ask if anyone, I'm sorry, I dipped out for a moment, the troubles of working from home. Um, if anyone has any thoughts, the state's going to start uh, helping to pay people to stay off meth. Um, I'm sorry if someone discussed that, but is that a big game changer? I'm not actually, I've heard mixed results. I've heard lots of promise, but I'm not 100% sure on that. I think maybe to summarize, Angela, good point to summarize, uh, you know, I, I think the evidence is mixed, but it is successful for some people. Michelle was noting that some counties have been successful with it. And, and I think yeah. given the limited tools in our toolbox for math, we certainly ought to use it. Okay, thank you. Uh, we have another question um, about some um, complicated uh, state and federal healthcare regulatory rules, which um, for those who aren't aware, called ERISA, which um, essentially says, please someone correct me if I'm wrong, <laughs> kind of spitballing here, says that states cannot regulate um, health insurance that's employer-based. Um, that's largely protected and anything that sort of reaches in and changes employer-based health insurance has to be done through federally. States have more power on Medi-Cal, Medicaid, of course, but the federal government has power over Medicare and, and, and employer-based private coverage. So there's a question about, given that dynamic and the limitations that California has in terms of regulatory, 
can the state actually make major changes to its delivery system and 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 you know address some of these inadequacies we've discussed this morning? I think this goes to something Janet mentioned earlier, which is that even for people with um, good health coverage, even for people with means and resources, there is still despair around uh, inadequate access to behavioral health. And I think uh, Senator Bell mentioned, you know, that is not a good trajectory for a an individual with really serious needs in this area. Um, it leads to people falling out of education, falling out of employment, and ultimately becoming a part of the safety net, which is already strained and overwhelmed and challenged, as we mentioned, by all of these sort of, uh, you know, different pots of funding with different strings attached to them. And so I do think that there is more we can do because people have been trained out of even thinking to try to use their insurance to access behavioral health services. And the reason that that is wrong is because they're paying those premiums and because, again, the consequences of not getting care when they need it are devastating, not just for that individual family, but for the entire state. You know, this is something that we're paying for in many, many different ways through disability, but also through corrections and state hospital costs, et cetera. And so... You know, I think that this sort of hopelessness or helplessness that, well, what can we do? You know, we need to, as a community, really demand more accountability. If we're going to put it on the safety net entirely, then we need to resource that safety net to do the job. But until we get to that point, we need to hold those responsible entities accountable for doing their part in, you know, we could see much more done in terms of early psychosis work. Um, we know that, you know, if, if caught early, a lot of these conditions can be remedied. And so our focus on prevention, on early intervention really needs to be there and the accountability and people need to know that if their insurance is not um, coming through for them, that there will be help for them and, and fast help. So it sounds like the state has um, uh, more, much more tools and sort of the public medical space. If you're in the private system, if you're sort of, you're perhaps a little bit left fend for yourself a little bit. And I think that's one of the areas, by the way, that the state is also looking to crack down on in terms of Medicaid and managed care plans. Um, if people aren't aware, there's a whole Medicaid re-procurement process underway, which is the state essentially for the first time ever is forcing the insurance companies serving Medi-Cal patients to reapply to do business. And they're going to be looking at how they have performed historically on quality. And they're going to be looking also at how robustly they're going to be implementing some of these non-traditional community services. So the state might also um, look at whether they're adequately funding that Medicaid system. Um, mm -hmm. You know, it's one thing to hold the plans accountable, but if the state is not funding the system adequately, there, you know, the result is going to be uh, a lot of deficits in that system and lower quality. Thank you. Um, Senator Bell. Yes, uh, the federal mental health parity act uh, implementation laws allow them to um, create a, a, st a statewide standard on mental health and implement it. So I don't think, um, I don't think um, the barriers are too strong. The state can also use their licensing, Knox King licensing and other licensing 
processes um, to enforce standards um, of care on uh, private insurance um, through those processes. So I think there is a there is plenty of ways for the state to make the private insurance um, improve mental health standards. So. Thank you, Senator Bell. That's really thoughtful. Um, uh, Janet, I'd like to direct this question towards you. Um, how do we encourage people in the field um, when they're met with so much challenges? Of course, we haven't even talked about the COVID burnout. There's a panel on that later today. Um, how do you encourage these workers, people to go into psych tech, nurses to go into the field of psychiatry and um, given the shortages, um, how do you address some of these issues with staffing? Is there, is there a magic bullet here? I don't think there's a magic bullet, but I, I think there are, um, you know, so, I mean, I think there are a lot of people out there with a lot of compassion, compassion who want to serve uh, folks with mental health and substance use disorders. And sometimes those folks don't, you know, know how to navigate the educational uh, system. Um, sometimes they can't afford to pay for their education. I mean, I think to Elaine's point about providing uh, financial support for folks, financial support. And also I think we know for folks um, from uh, socioeconomically disadvantaged backgrounds, underrepresented backgrounds, that, that needs to be more than financial. And I, it also needs to be psychosocial support. I wanna say one more thing yeah. is that as a state, we have not done the job that we need to do to invest in the education of behavioral health professionals. And we know investment in education works. Back in the early aughts, we had a very bad nursing crisis. The state invested a lot of money in funds to distribute to community colleges, Cal State campuses, to nursing programs. And lo and behold, we grew our nursing workforce substantially. Um, in the 2010s, we invested a lot of money in training primary care physicians, in training primary care residents. Yeah, and who's we? Are we talking about state? The state. The we're talking the state. Investments? Okay. So we're talking about state. So the state in the early aughts invested a lot in nursing education. Uh, in the ten, 2010s, we've invested a lot in primary care residency training through Song Brown and Prop 56. And we've seen the growth. But we have invested very little in behavioral health professions education in comparison very little funding in psychiatry residency, psych nurse practitioner, uh, LCA, uh, social work, marriage therapy. We just, we haven't done it. And I think if we really, really want to solve this crisis and, and get the right uh, folks with the right expertise and the right numbers in the right place, the state needs to step up to the plate in funding education. That's really interesting. So I got to ask them. Oh, sorry, go ahead, Michelle. Let me just ask though, like if you could build this into your, whatever you say, um, like the Cali Malone, excuse me, Cali Malone, um, you know, has about six billion dollars over five years to throw into this, and of course, it's not only all in behavioral health, but that's given what you just said. That seems like is that enough? It seems like that's even underfunding. Well, and, and I'm not. Well, but, I, go ahead, Michelle. The one thing I wanted to say is that, yes, we need to take a concerted statewide effort to invest in workforce. Yes, the Newsom administration has actually put money on the table for behavioral health workforce investments. And we've got, you know, what was a shortage pre-pandemic because of how we didn't let up and we were out in the fields throughout the pandemic and in person, the public behavioral health 
system now has a workforce crisis, um, it, you know, and it's it's pretty massive. And we've got a lot of investment into whether it's infrastructure or new programs, whether it's under Mount, you know, Cal AIM or in the schools, et cetera. So the demand side equation is going way up. The public need and awareness for behavioral health services way up and just the reality is that the people who are there now are really tired they have been working really hard and there are increasing demands on them and so i think part of what we need to be aware of is multifold one is how do we hold on to the people we have right yes in the immediate it's really retention strategies hold on to your people do what you can to keep them there in the long run i think we're going to have to look at a few different things, which is one, if we do take on this um, more directive, concerted effort to improve our workforce, as as the governor is trying to do with these investments, we have to make sure that we're not incentivizing people to come into behavioral health, only then to leave and go into private practice because it's so accessible, lucrative, easier than dealing with any insurance, right? So we have to figure out ways to really incentivize people, not just to go with insurance, but to go with the public side. And then um, the other piece is the earn and learn aspect. So again, if we're serious about diversity, we have to create policies that are about, you know, diversifying our workforce. And so understanding that people may not be able to take on unpaid internships and really thinking about things in, in a different way. Um, but ultimately, you know, I think the key here is we need to understand that um, we are digging ourselves out of a hole that feels like quicksand sometimes because mm -hmm. of the overwhelming need. And so this, this first investment might be thought of as, as sort of stage one, we really need a, a sort of to look out even further and consider what our workforce needs are here. And, and we really need to privilege or, or figure out ways to incentivize participation in our public system. Janet, <clears throat> Janet, if you could go briefly, I want to get one more question and we just have a couple minutes. Sure. Um, Angela, can I, before Janet goes, can I just make a comment on yeah, what please, Michelle just said? Please, please. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so if we train more people, um, you know, we need to train more people. That's a good thing. But if we don't correct the disparities in payment that we're providing for our low-income communities, it will not result in greater access. Um, they will go into places where they can make more money. So we've got to correct this disparity in payment. Our California Medicaid program has the third lowest rates in the country. That is driving a lot of providers to avoid treating our communities. So that absolutely has to be addressed. So agree. agree. Yeah, wholeheartedly agree. And Michelle, thank you for, for, for reminding us that the investments that have been made this year uh, in workforce development, tremendously important. My point is it's it, that's at best a down payment. It's not going to be anywhere near enough. Even really? Oh my gosh, that's so shocking to hear. There's been, I mean, it's unprecedented. So just really but I'm talking about the, the work. And I'm talking about the workforce investment. I mean, it's a huge oh, investment you. overall, but the workforce piece is relatively small and not so defined. So that's what I'm talking about is that when it comes to behavioral health workforce, what we've got in the budget this year is a good down payment, but not it, it pales in comparison to what we've invested over time in nursing and primary care. That's my point on the workforce development side. And, and workforce is absolutely and key. Thank you. 
And to Elaine's point, to Elaine's point, it won't matter yeah, <laughs> if you're we right, can't Michelle. increase increase salaries because at the mm-hmm. end of the day, you know, again, where the demand side is so high, nobody's going to be willing to really stick it out if they can earn, you know, a better life, work-life balance and better pay somewhere else. And so absolutely, thank you for raising that point, Dr. Bachelor. And um, <clears throat> final question, um, just, you know, um, California, and I think probably Senator Eggman may speak to this later on today. She's been a leader in this space. Um, California is um, dealing with conservatorship in a big way. Um, it's sexy right now. It's national headlines because of the Free Britney movement. But of course, the state has been working in this area for some years. Um, and I think sort of fits and starts. There's a question of can conservatorship be a viable option um, when placement is almost impossible due to facility and bed shortages? And um, I just want to use this last question as if you can address if anybody has any thoughts on that question. And really, do the state's conservatorship laws really do do, do they need to change? I would say that if if they do, it's in this resource investment area again. You know, one of the sort of I think the the hopes that people have when they say, you know, we need to change the laws so that we can conserve more people is really what they're saying is we want to get people help, right? And so, you know, for for us, our public guardians in California are not public funded by the state. They're they're sort of um, completely county funded at this point. And a lot of the treatment services, whether they're inpatient, um, unlocked or locked, are not reimbursed through Medi-Cal. And so any attempt or shift or thought or imagination that we're going to somehow fix some of these societal problems by conserving more people, we need to be very clear about the fact that, you know, all of that assumes that you have resources to both provide the support and the case management and and the healing supports that people need. Ultimately, long term, the strategy is not to, you know, have compelled forced treatment for people in the long run. What we want to do is really invest in systems that can help people out before they even need to go there. And so we we can pay now or pay later and would just say that, you know, the change that we need is in the resource side, in the, in the services that are necessary for these people. Uh, this is Jim. Um, my uh, stepson is developmentally disabled. He has a little bit of a cerebral palsy condition and he's... Um, uh, schizoid affective disorder uh, condition and is conserved by, you know, with us uh, permanently. Um, I didn't know that. We, uh, yeah, so I'm familiar with this. Um, I think that, uh, and, and I've been in, uh, my wife and I have been in the NAMI family to family training. And I think that um, uh, if they do a reform of conservatorship, they should include uh, developing a way of family support or even relative support uh, to avoid the isolation, uh, which is part of the stigma that we have. Um, when we did AB 12, Michelle will remember this. Can you uh, speak to what that was, Senator, please? Well, AB 12 was the foster care uh, kinship guardianship and uh, getting the age of foster care to 18 to 21. 
And we had uh, the whole thing of getting uh, family members to uh, adopt or foster uh, their relatives. And I think that uh, some kind of support system, uh, it might not be called conservatorship, but some kind of system that allows a relative to care and develop a circle of support around the person that has mental health would be a very humane and therapeutic thing for, for us to create if we wanted to uh, involve uh, family members and others. Thank you. That's very, um, very interesting. Thank you so much. Um, um, and I just want to thank everybody for, um, for being so wonderful today and questions. Thank you. Thank you. I want to thank Angela. I want to thank all of you. The Capital Weekly Podcast is produced by Tim Foster for Open California. If you enjoyed today's episode, we hope you'll go onto iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a positive review. Thanks a lot, and we'll see you next week.